0: Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 4. We continue our study here in the Gospel of John. We have just finished chapter 3. We have seen John, the apostle, the gospel writer, sharing with us what salvation is with the new birth, how we are regenerated, how we receive salvation. And then he also just showed us with John the Baptist what it looks like when we receive that. When the gospel takes root, we will say, may he increase, may we decrease. So off of the heels of Nicodemus and John the Baptist, John is going to give us another account that is so eerily similar to Nicodemus and yet so totally different. I love this passage, familiar passage, when we say the Samaritan woman or the woman at the well We instantly think, you know what, we know this. And I believe that we do. Um, But hopefully you guys all got that newsletter, the email that we sent out. That's also something that we're going to be doing every week just to make sure that we're communicating and letting you know what God's doing at our church and what's coming up. And I will be letting you know what the passage that I'll be preaching from will be. I want you to know that so you can read through it. Hopefully you asked questions. Hopefully as you read through it, maybe you We're diving in a little bit deeper and asking questions, and hopefully those questions will be answered. But we don't come to study God's word just to answer questions. We come to study God's word to be changed. There are so many things in this passage that have challenged me this last week. Even last night, there was something from this passage as I was reading it again that made me stop and say, God, I I did that wrong, and I need your forgiveness, and I need to grow and change. So we study to get answers, and those answers of what God's word truly means will then give us clarity to transform our lives from the inside out. We desire life changed. That's why we're studying side by side. We are needy people. If we come saying, I know this text, I know what it says, I know what it means, we're gonna walk away saying, Yeah, he got it right. Instead of saying, you know what, there is so much that I need to learn and grow in because of this passage in this text we are actually going to see yet again our absolutely depressing condition our woeful condition and we will see an amazing savior yet again and i just want to plead with all of us don't minimize the depravity of our woeful condition don't minimize that because if you do you minimize the amazing grace of the savior so as we study this passage. This morning, we are going to split it up into two sections. We're going to see Jesus' grace being intentional. That's verses 1 through 6. And then we will see Jesus' grace being relational, verses 7 through 15. Let me just read these verses for us, and then we'll ask God's blessing on our time. John chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, because his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty or come all the way here to draw. God, may your spirit be pleased to open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Change us as we stare at the glory of Jesus and his grace. We pray in his name. Amen. So number one, we are going to look at Jesus's grace being intentional. Go back to verse one. It starts with therefore, therefore, connecting back to the last passage, uh, looking at John the Baptist and his disciples, Jesus and his disciples and their quarrel that's been going on. When the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard about that and that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, there's a parenthesis there that John, the gospel writer, wants to make sure that we know Jesus himself wasn't baptizing. We talked about this. Two weeks ago, his disciples were. It's the exact same thing that happened with Paul in First Corinthians. I, I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you. He baptized just a couple people, but his purpose was not to baptize because then people would be able to say, hey, wait, I was baptized by Paul. I'm better than you. So when Jesus heard, verse 3, he left. He left you, Dan, and he went away, away to Galilee. Why? These are questions that keep me up at night, by the way. I don't see a reason in here. I see a broad umbrella reason that the Lord knew the Pharisees had heard Jesus was baptizing more, making more disciples than John. But why is that a reason for Jesus to up and leave? Um, These are the answers that I came up with here. Number one, we know it's not out of fear. He's not afraid We know he's not afraid to die. He even says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. So he knows there's a a time, there's an hour. So it could be, it's not that he's afraid, but it could be that he knows there's so much turmoil happening that the Pharisees might come and might kill him and his hour hasn't come yet. Remember, he always says that my hour has not yet come. I need to leave. We talk about that a lot with the triumphal entry, how he kept himself alive so that he could get killed on Good Friday. So maybe it's that his time hasn't come. Maybe he knew the Pharisees would take this opportunity to say, look, John the Baptist is not a true prophet because Jesus is getting all of his disciples. If he was a true prophet, they would stay with John the Baptist, but he's not a true prophet. And if we can discredit John the Baptist as a true prophet, then we can discredit the person he's pointing to, which is Jesus. If John isn't the forerunner, then Jesus isn't the Messiah. Could be that. Could be the fact that this would discredit his ministry. It could be that they're going to try and pit the two together. Probably is all of those things, a little bit of all. But verse four tells us the explicit reason he had to pass through Samaria. Literally in the Greek, it was necessary for him to pass through Samaria. Now, is another question. Why is that word there? Why is had there? Because the reality is we know he didn't have to go through. There are multiple routes to move from Judea up to Galilee. You can cross over the Jordan River, pass through Jericho, and go up. It's called the Transjordanian Highway. Go up. So you bypass Samaria, and many people would do that. You could go the coastal route. Uh, go all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, go walk along the coastal route. People did that too. If you were super religious, you would m- maybe even take a boat, and go into the Mediterranean Sea, take a boat and go all the way up to Galilee because you didn't want to come into contact with Samaritans. So he didn't have to, but it was necessary because God the Father has given Jesus, his son, an appointment with this woman. He had to go through. So he left Judea. Because he had to go to Samaria. He had to meet with this woman. Now, we have to stop right there and we have to say this. When Jesus does one thing, in this text alone, he's probably doing five things. When Jesus does one thing in your life, he's doing a thousand things that you can't see. He is. And here's the beauty of knowing that we have a sovereign God. We know if we are in Christ that when he is doing those thousand things, this is the promise that we have in Jesus Christ. When God does one thing, he does a thousand things. And those thousand billion million things are done for your good. All of them. A nonbeliever doesn't have that promise. All he knows is that when Jesus does one thing, he does a billion things. But believers know when God does one thing, he's doing a billion things. And all of the things that He is doing inside of that are for our good, according to Romans 8, 28 and 29. We may never know one specific purpose when God brings a trial or suffering in your life. We may never know what it is that God is trying to accomplish. But we know that what he's doing is for our good. That's why in this passage already, I am encouraged to be slow to criticize God. When I see something and I say, you know what, I don't think that's the way it should be done. This passage tells me Jesus has multiple reasons just for walking. If he has multiple reasons for walking somewhere, how much more does he have multiple amazing reasons for doing what he's doing in your life? Let's be slow to criticize God when things aren't going the way we want them to. In fact, we know there's a very helpful chapter in a book called Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper, and he reviews six things that we know without a shadow of a doubt biblically when God does one thing. He's doing these six things at the very least. Uh, you probably even know some of those six things that would come to mind of what God is doing when He's working in your life. So, Jesus is doing a, a billion things here. We see a couple explicit statements, we see a couple that aren't as explicit. But he passes through Samaria because he has to get to this woman and speak to her. He has an appointment with her from eternity past. So, verse 5. He came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well is there. It's just helping us identify he's in the heart of Samaria, and he's next to Jacob's well. A very good, deep well that still flows even to this day. So... Verse 6, Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, literally sitting on the well. He sits down on the well because he's tired, he's exhausted. I love in two verses we have Jesus' deity on display. He has been given a commission by God the Father with an appointment for this woman. He is God, very God, and yet he's so tired he can't even stand up. He has to sit down perfect deity, perfect humanity, 100% of both at the exact same time. He's exhausted. But his exhaustion does not stop him from ministering. Kent Hughes says, a ministering heart is a tired heart, but a ministering heart reaches out even when they're tired. Jesus could have had the excuse. He could have used the excuse. He had it. He could have used it say, I'm exhausted, not right now, the woman comes up, you know what, later, I'll see her again sometime or I'll find her, not right now, I'm exhausted. I don't know if you've been there before, when all you want to do is just sit down, take a nap, rest. This always happens at my house for some reason on Sunday nights when I am just dead tired, and I hear a knock at my door, and I go to the door, and it's Mormons or Jehovah's Witness, and I just think, why? Well, now... Instantly, that's always my first fleshly reaction. Please, I don't want to do this now. And then I think of Jesus talking to a woman who knew nothing of the gospel. These people knew nothing of the gospel. These people at my door do not know anything of the gospel, and so I share it with them. Even when we're tired, we need to minister. He's sitting on the well. It's about the sixth hour Now, there's a lot of discrepancy on what the sixth hour refers to. Remember, we usually break down time into two time groups, Roman time or Jewish time. Roman time starts at midnight, so this would be, uh, if you're using 12-hour periods, this could either be 6 a.m. or 6 p.m., because there's a 12-hour period from midnight to noon and then from noon back to midnight. Jewish time just works off of the sun coming up, so if the sun comes up around 6 a.m., then this is noon, This is such a discrepancy that in your, if you have a MacArthur study Bible, one note says that this means it's 6 p.m. and then the very next note says that the woman came at noon. Um, So this is a discrepancy. Now, I honestly don't, let me just say right off the bat, I don't think it matters what time she was there because there's another hint that tells us if we get the time wrong, we still understand who she is. And the hint is she came alone. Normally she would come with a group of women. They would draw water together. She comes alone. She's an outcast. That's why a lot of people make a big deal about the sixth hour because they say she came at noon, which is during the midday sun. It's hot. And normally you would not go to draw water during the middle of the day, during the heat. So two things. She's by herself and she's going at a time when nobody else is going because she doesn't want to be spoken to. I like that. I think that works. But if it doesn't work with this time, It's still okay. Let me just try and quickly define this for us. The reason why it's a discrepancy is there are places in John where it looks like he uses Jewish time and it looks like he uses Roman time. He doesn't use one time throughout. We already saw in John chapter 1 verse 39 that he used Jewish time. It was kind of a toss up, but we said he used Jewish time because of the language in that verse. We also know he uses Roman time, official Roman time, when referring to the hours of the crucifixion. So that's why, which one is he using here? And I just want to tell you, let me give you the answer. I think he's using Jewish time. I refer to it as common time because Romans also used Jewish time when they were talking about normal everyday events. The sun's come up. It's been about three hours since the sun's come up. They didn't always use a standard Roman time. They used the standard Roman time when it was legal issues. And that's why I believe that John's using standard Roman time when he's talking about the crucifixion because there's legal documentation, there's legal issues that are going on, decrees being made by the Romans. But there are so many commentaries by guys that have gone so much deeper into this issue that have said Romans used the so-called Jewish time as well, common time. So I believe that this is noon. It's noon. He's exhausted. It's hot. He sits down. I love Oswald Sanders. He says, the world is run by tired men. And here is our Savior, exhausted but intentional. Jesus' grace is intentional. He gets up from Judea to go through Samaria to sit on a well at a time when this woman is going to show up. He knows all of this that's happening. He is God, very God, given all of this information through the Spirit to Jesus by the Father for this appointment. And his grace is utterly intentional. This is not a coincidence. What a gracious God we serve to come to this place at this time for this woman in this way. Secondly, Jesus's grace is relational. It's not only intentional. It's not only purposeful. It's also relational. Verse seven, there comes a woman of Samaria She's coming, number one, by herself, not in a group. And number two, she's coming, we're going to say at the sixth hour is noon. She's coming during the middle of the day, uh, during the heat. Both of these things would not normally be done. You would go when it was cooler and you would go in a group of people. But she's going by herself. Why? She's an outcast. She had a bad reputation, to borrow from Nathaniel Hawthorne. She was a woman with a scarlet letter. She was an outcast. She was despised, and we're going to see she is a very immoral person. We're going to look next week at her immorality. We're going to look at her life. She's been married multiple times and divorced multiple times. Why? If these are upstanding divorces, if these are biblical divorces, Moses had given a certificate of divorce, of an allowance for divorce on the basis of sexual immorality, so probably she's been found out to be unfaithful as an adulterer five times already. And the whole city knows, the whole town knows she's an outcast. So she comes, and Jesus interacts with her. So remember I said Nicodemus and this woman parallels, but very different. They're juxtaposed. Same exact thing that's going on, but very different circumstances. Nicodemus is an upstanding man. He's a Jewish upstanding man. This woman is a Samaritan woman who is... Uh, has a terrible reputation as an immoral woman. Nicodemus comes by night. Samaritan woman comes by day, middle of the day. But this in verse 7, I love this. Nicodemus initiates with Jesus, right? He pursues Jesus and asks a question. In this account, Jesus pursues this woman. If Jesus had not spoken, this woman had, would not have had a conversation with him. So Jesus says, give me a drink. Why does he say that? Verse 8 tells us, Because his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, meaning two things. Number one, his disciples normally would have given him a drink. He would have said, man, I am thirsty. And they would have said, oh, we'll help you out. And they would have drawn some water, given him a drink. But they've gone into the city to buy some food, which tells us a couple things about the disciples and about Jesus's purpose even here. It tells us that Jesus probably said, hey, can you go get some food? The reason why it's not explicit there, but the reason why I think that is because how many disciples does it take to get food for 13 people? It doesn't take 12 disciples. So I think Jesus is saying, can you please go? All of you. Probably the first thing he says is, can you go get some food? Peter, I'm, I'm sure is probably the first one. I'll do whatever. Peter says, yes, I'll go. Can I take my brother? Yes. So Peter and Andrew leave. And as they start going, Jesus says, can all of you go? And they go, we don't need to all go. Like, these people bring back the Egg McMuffins. We'll be fine. Don't worry about it. And Jesus says, no, all of you need to go. They go, well, he's tired. He's exhausted. Whatever. We'll all go. Why is he doing that? Because he wants to be alone with this woman to share the gospel with her. And if the disciples had been there, they would have ruined this opportunity. So he says, go. Go. This also tells us that Jesus and the disciples are not caring about the religious tradition of the day because to eat food that was made by Samaritan hands as a Jewish person would have been defiling. But they don't care. They don't care. So he says, give me a drink. He initiates with her. He pursues her. He steps out of his way to go to her. Now, it's at this moment that we can read this one of two ways. Normally, this is where the passage becomes an evangelistic sermon. And there's a lot of evangelistic implications in this. And I think we should go there and we'll get to some of them. But I think before we go to look at what Jesus did, we need to do the same thing. Look at how Jesus pursued. We need to pursue too. look at how we love. We need to love, too. We're going to talk about that. And that's good. But the first place where we need to start, first and foremost, before we look at what Jesus did to this woman and try to copy that, we need to look at this situation, at this circumstance, at this narrative, and see ourselves not as Jesus trying to reach lost people, but as the Samaritan woman being pursued by Jesus. If we understand the grace of God that pursued us the exact same way that this woman is pursued, we will not need an evangelistic sermon. If we truly understood the way that God's grace has pursued us, then we will naturally go out because we will pursue as we have been pursued. We will love as we have been loved. We need to see in these verses that Jesus is offering us the fountain of living water. And he is intentional to offer it to us and he is relational to come to us. There were just as many barriers between him and the Samaritan woman as there are between him and us And we need to see him running after us. It's like Luke 15, the prodigal son. While the son was still far away, the father saw him and ran to him. That's how God pursued you and pursued me. We need to drink deeply from the fountain of living water that God has graciously offered to us. And then as we drink deeply, evangelism will be a byproduct. It'll be a natural overflow. So verse 8. Let's see how he relationally connects. He sends the disciples away, verse 9. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? And another parenthesis, the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So what's being said here is massive. The Samaritan woman says, There's no way we should be talking. You are a Jew, I am a Samaritan. Why the hate? You probably know why the hate between Jews and Samaritans. Let me just read a helpful um, section of D.A. Carson's commentary on this. After the Assyrians captured Samaria, so Assyrians in the north, 722 B.C., come in, they capture um, the northern kingdom of Israel. The capital city of the northern kingdom is Samaria. So they take all of these people away, all the northern kingdom. They deported all the Israelites of substance and settled the land with foreigners. The foreigners intermarried with the surviving Israelites and adhered to some form of their ancient religion. And after the exile um, of the North and the South, when all of the Jews returned back to their homeland, uh, the Jews viewed the Samaritans not only as the children of political rebels, but as racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted by various unacceptable elements. Such as Samaritans only believed in the Pentateuch. They didn't believe in the prophets or the writings. They just believed the law. And at about 400 B.C., the Samaritans uh, established a rival temple on Mount Gerizim. They said, you know, what? we're sick of you guys telling us what to do, you Jewish people. We have our religion. It's very similar, but it's different enough that we're going to make our own church. So they established their temple on Mount Gerizim. Samaritans were looked upon as half-breeds. They were hated by Jews because they were different. They weren't pure. They weren't pure breads. They were mutts, if you will. They were intermarried, and they had taken some of those religious affections of these pagan deities and have incorporated them into their own religion. So one of the Pharisaical uh, traditions or one of the sayings for a Pharisee and a, and a good rabbi was this. Let no man eat the bread of the Samaritans, for he who eats their bread is as he who eats swine's flesh. So eating the bread of the Pharisees is like eating an unclean animal. They even had a prayer. Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. Just forget about them. Raise everybody else. Let them stay dead. We don't want them. There were even a a sect of Pharisees known as the bruised and bleeding Pharisees, Whenever they saw Samaritans or whenever they saw women, um, they would close their eyes and they would keep walking and they'd run into buildings or fall into pits. Um, they had no dealings with Jews so or no dealings with Samaritans. She had two things going against her. Number one, she's a Samaritan. Number two, she is a woman and that was a huge issue back then. You separated the men and the women. They don't have dealings with each other. And that's what she says. I'm a Samaritan woman. And then John tells us the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Literally in the Greek, they don't share utensils. Um, they don't eat from the same utensil. Uh, you are unclean. We don't, we don't get together and eat together and share the same cups. You don't mix these two things together. To put this story into perspective... Uh, this would be like if we go back in time, 50, 60 years, drive to a restaurant in the South, step out, and there's a water fountain that says white. There's a water fountain that says colored. And it'd be like one going to the other fountain. It'd be like me showing up at the colored fountain and saying, hey, can I please have some water? You don't do that. That doesn't make sense racially. And the racism that was so prevalent in America and still flourishes in many places, so despicable in our country, it's nothing new. It happened in Jesus' day. And so the Samaritan woman says, this doesn't work. You're a racist. I'm a racist. We don't meet. But Jesus crosses that racial barrier. He goes beyond that. He breaks down every barrier and he pursues her. Remember John chapter 1, verses 14 through 16? We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth, and we have grace upon grace given to us. The we there is, yes, believers, but who were we before we were believers? Jesus had to break down racial barriers. Jesus had to break down ethnic groups. Jesus had to break down sin. He pursued us us murderers, us adulterers, and has lavished grace upon grace upon us. The only reason we've received grace upon grace is Jesus took that step to pursue us. The only reason this woman is going to receive grace upon grace is because Jesus is going to pursue her. And he does it in an amazing way. We studied this with side by side this couple weeks ago. We need to pursue as God has pursued us. We need to pursue others as he has pursued us. Do you pursue others the way that Jesus pursued you? Do you love others the way that you were loved? Let me ask you just some practical questions on that. Do you sacrifice your comfort to reach out and associate with someone you're not naturally drawn to? This woman is not somebody Jesus naturally would have been drawn to. Now, it's not wrong to have connections with people we are naturally drawn to. But if you stay in those connections alone, then what is the difference between you and the world? If we just stay with connections that we have with people that are like us, how will the world look on and say, that's amazing? They won't. Remember the book of Ephesians, Paul says, Jesus has broken down the walls of hostility and now Jew and Gentile can fellowship in the church together. If an outsider walks in, if a Jew walks in or a Gentile walks into a church and sees Jew and Gentile ministering and fellowshipping together, they're going to say, how does this work? This can't work this way. And they're going to say, it's because of the gospel. It's because of the gospel. So my question is, who is there in your life that you are friends with that you would not be friends with if the gospel didn't exist? What relationships do you have with people around you that are existing only because of the gospel? When you see two different people, after our church is done today and we go to fellowship on the patio, you see two people. Who are you most inclined to pursue? Somebody that you know very well, that you know we have similar interests, or somebody that you feel a little bit more uncomfortable with. Our study in Side by Side, our study this morning, would encourage us, step out and go to the person who you are uncomfortable with. Why? Not because it's a legalistic thing to do. It's because of the way Jesus loved us. That's how Jesus pursued us. This is one of the saddest things that I've heard over the several years of ministry that I've been a part of with junior high group, with high school group, with college group, with the church as a whole. One of the things I hear the most when people end up leaving a church, and it's totally fine that people leave, they can leave. We're not, you know, you must stay. It's it's okay. But one of the things that I hear when I ask, hey, why'd you leave? Say, I didn't really have anything in common with those people. Now, if they're a believer, they have more in common with the church than they have in common with their own family. So what are they saying? They're saying, you know what? I don't really have anything in common with them, worldly-wise. I want to establish relationships based on worldly things, and these people have nothing that matches my worldly desires. Paul would say in Ephesians, these things ought not be so. We should be using our spiritual gifts. We should be getting plugged in. We should be living life on life together. We should be diving into the church, being involved in as much as we can be with other people that we don't have anything in common with except for Jesus. And that's all we need to have something in common with because he is the common uniter between us. We all stand before Jesus and we are all undone because of our sin. We are all connected because of his blood. We are family greater than our own physical, biological family. So I don't know anything that excites you worldly wise. I don't know anything about you that that and I don't enjoy anything that you enjoy. That's fine. If you love Jesus and I love Jesus, we can talk for hours. We can. That's what a church should be made up of. It should be made up of people whose relationships are connected first and foremost. Again, I'm not saying that worldly connections are wrong. That's I mean, we did that. We have men's groups. Why? Because we're all men like that's that's a worldly connection. Um. There are worldly connections that we make, and it's fine. I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm saying that's wrong if it's primary. It's another sermon for another time, but. Do you sacrifice your preferences? Do you sacrifice your time, your resources? Do you sacrifice your habits? Do people see Jesus in the way that you love? In the way that you love. Verse 10 Jesus answers. She says, What do we have to do with one another? And Jesus answers her, if you only knew the gift of God, that word gift there literally means without a cause. Um, John chapter 15, verse 25, you can just write it down. John 15, verse 25 says that they hated Jesus without a cause. And it literally translates it that way. They hated me without a cause. It's translated here as gift because there was no cause in us. To make God love us. There was nothing that we did to get God to love us. Which again goes back to Nicodemus, which is so similar here. Jesus is going to say in verse 10 two things that are identical to what he said to Nicodemus. Number one, you cannot do anything to be saved. You can't do anything. You can't get regeneration to happen by something you do. It's a gift. It's without a cause. God does it. So how do you get it? I love this. This is just confirmation of everything we studied. Okay, if I can't do anything to to make it happen, how do I get it? Verse 10, if you only knew the gift of God and he was saying it to you, give me a drink, you would have what? Asked. Remember, that's what we said. You can't make regeneration happen, but what can you do? You can ask. You can ask. We said with Nicodemus... um, People who are in hell are in hell, not because there's some decree that God made or God forced them to be there. People who are in hell aren't in hell because God decided, you know what, I'm going to push you there. People are in hell because they were too proud to ask for this gift. They love their sin too much to ask for this gift. Jesus says this, Luke chapter 13, verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that killed the prophet, stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you and your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her her wings. I wanted to do that. But in the eternal decree and plan of God, it wasn't ordained. It wasn't pre No. But you wouldn't have it. I invited. I asked. Come. And you said No. Jesus says, it's a gift. You can't do anything to get it, to deserve it, to make it happen, but you can ask. You can plead. And that's what we can do for the non-believers we know in our lives. Please, God, work. May the wind blow in their lives. If you only knew, you would have asked me, and I would have given it to you. You would have asked, and I wouldn't have checked a book to say, hmm, are you elect? You would have asked, and I would have given it. I would give you living water. That's an Old Testament phrase. It goes back to many verses in the Old Testament. Let me give you just a couple. <clears throat> Psalm 36, verse 9, God is the fountain of living water. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, the redeemed in him will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Isaiah 55, 1, behold, everyone that thirsts come and drink water. Water is life and God is the source of ultimate eternal life. Draw your life from God. Now, just like Nicodemus, this woman's not going to get it. Jesus says, uh, you must be born again. Nicodemus says, how is that humanly possible? Same thing here, verse 11. She says, he he says, you need living water. And she says, okay, but you don't have a a bucket. How are you going to drop this water to give it to me? The well is deep. Verse 11, where then do you go to get that water? Verse 12, you aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? And her answer to that is, no, you're not. You're not somebody special. Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. By the way, she's adding tradition. All the Old Testament says is that Jacob bought a field and gave it to Joseph in Genesis 33 and Genesis 48. So she's adding tradition of what Jacob did. But she says, you're not better than him. He picked a really good spot. He picked a good well. You don't have a better well. And Jesus answers, verse 13, Everyone, for God so loved the world, that whosoever, everyone. He's speaking in everyone's now. Everyone, all. Everyone who drinks of this water is going to thirst again. But whosoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. It's open to everybody. If you will ask, you can drink. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Notice this water has five amazing qualities about it. Let's put them together into a list. Number one, this water, this living water that God offers to this woman and God offers to you and to me today is the gift of God. Verse 10. Number one, it's the gift of God. It's not based on anything that we can do to merit it. We don't go dig it out. We don't go put a bucket down. We just sit there and God, as we ask God, please satisfy me. God gives this water. It's a gift. Number two, it's living water. It's living water. It's moving. It's flowing. It gives life. This is also in verse 10. Number three, if you drink it, you will never thirst again. Now, this can mean a couple different things for the sake of time. Let me tell you what this means. You will never thirst again means it is always there to satisfy your soul. It is always there. You never have to thirst again once you drink from this water. You never have to. Um, Doesn't mean you're never going to be thirsty again. There are times when our spiritual condition, we choose sin and flesh over Jesus. And we're going to talk about that. But what Jesus is saying is if you come to this fountain and you stay there and you drink only of this, you're never going to thirst again. Number four, why? Because this water becomes a spring it's not just water that you drink and you're done. It becomes a spring. When you drink it, it turns into a spring. It turns into a fountain that's going to keep on flowing. So you don't ever have to be thirsty again. The only time we become thirsty is if we say, I don't want any more of this. We put a lid over it. Number five, this water gives eternal life. Verse 14. It's a water. It's a well springing up to eternal life. What does she say in response? Verse 15. Sir give me this water. She's asking, but why is she asking? This is so crucial. The prosperity gospel lives in verse 15. She says, I want that water. Why? Because I'm a sinner needing salvation. No, I'm sick and tired of dragging this bucket to the well all the time. Give me a bucket or a, or a well or a spring that I won't ever need to carry this water anymore. You're telling me that I can have indoor plumbing in my house? That's all she wants. That's all she wants. She doesn't want salvation. She just wants to never have to draw the water and take the bucket back home. So many people say, come to Jesus because this, 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 this will be better for you. You will get healthy. You'll be wealthy. You'll be wise. You'll be all these different things. She gets that. That's why we don't tailor the gospel to our quote-unquote felt needs or what we want or our human worldly desires. We tailor the gospel to our spiritual needs. And we say, Jesus, I want that well because if I don't have it, I will die eternally. She doesn't get it. So we've seen the parallels and the paradoxes. Nicodemus sought Jesus the woman was sought by Jesus. Nicodemus was a moral, ethical man. The woman was an adulterer, an immoral outcast. This, Nicodemus was a Jewish man. Samaritan woman is a Samaritan woman. Nicodemus comes by night. She goes by day. Nicodemus's questions get smaller and smaller. They start off big, and then they just become like, how is that possible? Wait, what? That's, those are his questions. Her questions just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think it shows Nicodemus doesn't have eternal life at the end of chapter three. He doesn't. She's going to have eternal life at the end of chapter four. Her questions get bigger. She keeps asking. She keeps diving in deeper. But boy, she does not get it here. Just like Nicodemus. Two follow-up questions. Why? How? This doesn't work. And just like Nicodemus, Jesus isn't going to give up on her. He doesn't say, you obviously haven't gotten the point of what I'm saying. You obviously don't understand. The new birth obviously hasn't happened yet, so I'm just moving on and waiting. No, he stays and he pursues in amazing ways. What are those amazing ways? How does he do it? Come back next week. We'll find out. Father, I thank you so much for your amazing grace. I thank you for the way that you have pursued us. I thank you for the way that you have intentionally purposefully pursued us we didn't deserve it it is a gift we've never earned it it is solely by the grace of jesus christ and so we come to his fountain right now we come to his fountain and we drink and we are refreshed again and we are blown away that he would love us God, what a perfect passage to be able to look at right before we take communion. The wellspring of eternal life was opened up only because of what you did on the cross. And because of what you've done on the cross, we are now satisfied beyond anything this world has to offer. So I pray as we prepare our hearts to partake of communion together. That you would, by your grace, remind us of how lost we were, our desperate condition. We were just like this woman, not getting anything about who you are or what you were offering. And then you pursued and you, you were relationally connected with us in a way that, in an unbelievable turn of grace, you gave us salvation. You opened our eyes. Open our eyes now as we sing. Open our eyes as we hold these elements, as we prepare to partake of communion together. We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.